0: Welcome to Care to Share, where the personal is clinical. I'm Jessie Greenfield, and today we have a dialogue between a formerly incarcerated woman and a provider who gives care to people who are in prison. They have asked to remain anonymous for their personal safety and privacy as they share their experiences, so their names will not be mentioned. They talk about the arduous process of what it takes to get care in prison, what the care looks and feels like when it actually happens, and several moments in between. And as a heads up before you listen, on this episode there are mentions of incarceration, violence, rape, and medical negligence.
1: So hi, I am um, a formerly incarcerated woman, middle-aged, I guess we could call that. <laughs> I am generous to myself. I have completed BU and
2: UMass, and uh, we're going to talk about healthcare today. Uh, I'm a clinician, um, and I work in the jails. Things that are important to me are being a mom, getting a lot of sleep, Mm. balancing coffee in the morning with a few beers at night, and just giving people voices who may not feel like they have a voice.
1: Ah, So those would be my voices.
2: (laughs) I'm speaking for (laughs) all
1: those many people that uh, do not have that opportunity or that option to be able to be hurt, which is great.
2: Well, I guess one of the questions that I could ask you is, you know, it sounds like you spent time in, in jail and um, how easy was it to receive the care that you needed and, you know, what steps did you need to take in order to see someone for your health care?
1: Well, usually the process would be on a as-need basis. Um, you would put in a slip mm-hmm. and you would put it in a little box telling them what your issues are. And if it was something serious, they might call you in a week. And if it was something less serious, you might get a call in a week or two, uh. depending on how many come in first, because usually it's the people who are just being sentenced that will be seen prior to anyone else, mm. their top priority, so they can be evaluated first. So to see if physicians could be a bit of an obstacle and a bit of a challenge, depending on your situations. I had a lot of
2: situations. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I think that your experience is quite common um, and when I go to see people they say the same thing and I think what the, one of the issues are is that the sick slips are triaged by nurses or LPNs mm-hmm. and it's a lot of pressure on a nurse or an LPN. To decide what's something that's acute and what's not it takes several gatekeepers to get it to the level of someone who especially when you're sick you really need to be seen it's a staffing shortage and then often what the people from the jail say is that when people get incarcerated every small thing becomes a big thing this is this is not my point of view um, I've but, heard that. yeah but so you know and I, and I have seen people in jail we've had a rash for you know 30 40 years and suddenly this needs to be taken care of right now and mm-hmm. if it doesn't i'm going to go to prisoner legal services that's not oh i know that's not I, everyone I, I've, but I've seen some of the women do
1: the same yeah know,
2: but it's where, yeah
1: and it's hard the thing is I've, you would barely ever see a doctor right or you would see the nurse practitioner right yeah instead of a doctor And it would be up to her to run the test that you need to have run and the results on that, and then they would decide where it would have to go from there. Mm -hmm. And the avoidance would be bringing it to a doctor because they're so rare to get a hold of, they're too busy handling the people that are coming in. So to get them in to actually see somebody who else needs to see them is a bit of a challenge. And if you actually are sick, you know, it's like, okay, you need to go out to a hospital or something, or you need special care, then you have a protocol that they have to follow (laughs) you end up pushing and pushing because you really need to get it done, and the the time frame on that can take months. And in that process, you get extremely ill, which I have found in my own case, where I literally, the blood work, kept saying one thing, and I'm saying, yeah, but I'm not a kid. I know my body, and something's seriously wrong. And I had some serious symptoms that should have been the red flag right there that were not put into the category it should have been put into. And as a result to that, I was extremely sick for a very long period of time. And now I am on medications for the rest of my life to keep me alive. But I had to threaten lawsuits to even get that done. And it's a shame that it got to that point where even your staff was like, oh, my gosh, she looks horrible. What the hell happened? Lack of medication, lack of the treatment that I needed. And it was all based on one testing, which should have been even put further at that point but I had a great nurse practitioner too so I can't even get mad at her for not but I could at the same time like well you should have taken a further step but her hands are tied also
2: yeah we get by the time that we're called we have this phrase when in doubt get them out you need to get them to emergency room because the health care is for profit although you can say all health care in some way might be for profit it's not the same way that this healthcare is for profit so people who work at jails and prisons may feel that if they keep on sending people out for specialists that they're going against the bottom line you know because it's it's not only the doctor's appointment but it's the transportation and the ceos and then you have to go to shattuck and you know all these other things mm. and um and it's no fun for us it's no because and then, yeah you're getting
1: shackled mm-hmm. right you're getting leg ions, leg waist around you. Your right. hands are handcuffed in the, in the trains around your waist. Mm. You're sitting on a concrete slab literally for the entire day. After you've just done a van ride, that is on a very uncomfortable bench, jammed into a position where you're flying all over, depending on what turns they take and what bumps you're hitting. So it's a very, if most people will avoid it at all costs. So you'll have a lot of people that are incarcerated that won't go outside for treatments because of the trip that it takes to get to Shattuck and the process it takes to sit there for all that time and all the days. And and by the time you leave at 5 in the morning and you get back at 9 o'clock at night, you're wiped.
2: You may not have eaten.
1: I know. At all. (laughs) Depending on what timing you got. Right, right, right. right. So it's the process of even getting it to Shattuck is is the, the turmoil of all of it.
2: Yeah, there's this debate about whether telemedicine is better or worse. The process of actually having docs or clinicians see you through a camera, it would decrease that ability, but then it would take away the in-person intuitiveness. I don't know. I think if that wasn't available in my time, I think that would have been a good
1: option. But I know for me, I needed testing done. Yeah. So mine was a matter of getting the approval for the test right. that I had right. to have yeah. done to Correct. prove what was wrong with me, right. which I literally diagnosed myself, right. and then brought the paperwork to the super and said, "Look, this is what's wrong. This is what's going to happen if I keep getting sick. This is the out- the outcome, and it's highlighted death. So I just think we need to take care of this." <laughs>
2: Did you go to the, uh, well, there was a conference last year where actually it was about healthcare, and several men who were incarcerated were there. And they even said that there was one designated person in the prison who was always the go-to, the person who was incarcerated, who was the doctor. Like the <laughs> one with the Hello. most knowledge. And they, they, I guess they kept this book that they would pass on to other people. It was a medical oh, that book. That was so awesome. And it would be tattered and torn and highlighted. And so... You know, if you had put in those sick calls and never gotten back, you would just go to this person who would say, almost like a, not a witch doctor, but like, sort of a shaman yeah, who would, track. yeah, who would, who would listen to you. And some of the things that they were able to solve were, well, it's the water in here. The water's really hard. Mm-hmm. So people are getting rashes because it's dry skin. Yeah. So like, and that was that the heating some, system, the heating, how to do things. So there were these little tricks from the inside um, that you could learn. Um, sometimes people would come down with diarrhea, and we realized that to keep their milks cold after they got it, they would keep it in the toilet bowl. Mm-hmm. And so the toilet, yes, the milk the was germs. getting, um, you know, poop in it, basically. And so, like, there's these little inside things that happen. So sometimes the community actually became your provider yeah. without the provider
1: being. Well, I, if I ever got <laughs> sick, I would go, like, I, I knew some amazing Latino women, mm-hmm. and they would give me these remedies and mm. be like, oh, you're sick today? No, no, we take care if you watch this. (laughs) I'd be like, okay. The next thing you know, I would have the tea with the the Mm -hmm. honey and Mm -hmm. the lemon peels and the orange peels and cough drops inside it and a cold tablet inside it and Mm -hmm. boiled to a... And I would be functioning the next day. I'd be like, oh, God, I just love them
2: women. (laughs) Mm -hmm. kind of wonder how much of that... Uh, therapeutic aspect was just actually having someone listen and take care of you. It could have been total placebo in that water that they were giving you, but it's actually that someone was just taking care of you and listening to you. Uh, oh, you think it was? Okay. Right? I, <laughs> I thought it put the stuff in oh it myself, but okay. too. So.
1: <laughs> but, yeah, because I was one of those kind of people that I would avoid going to the doctor as much as possible unless I couldn't move anymore, and then it would be like, oh, man, I really have to go. I can remember the first time I hurt my back, I couldn't get up and walk, and I was just like, I am not mm-hmm. standing in this hospital unit hospital unit is um, i hate to say it but it's MRSA nine out of ten times you're gonna come out of there with MRSA yikes and then you're gonna end up back there because now you need the IVs to get rid of the MRSA Mm. so you avoided it and plus you're locked in you don't get your canteen you don't get to associate with your friends you don't get to walk the
2: yard you're sort of locked in that unit
0: yeah
2: so uh Yeah, (laughs) I've had a lot of patients come, so MRSA is methicillin-resistant staph aureus. It's a bacteria. It actually lives on all of our skins normally. But once you're in a hospital setting or in a jail setting, it's sort of, you are at increased risk of actually getting infections from it. Um, I I think that's probably, there's definitely merit to that. And, you know, you're around sick people, so Mm -hmm. if... If you're in a room with other sick people, you may not have gone there with flu, but you can come out with flu. So. Yes. You know, and one of the downfalls with the Mercer is a lot of people don't want to tell their doctors because they
1: don't want to go to the, to, to, it's called HSU mm-hmm. area, mm-hmm. the hospital unit. They don't want to go there, so they don't tell anyone. Now they're contagious, and they're spreading it to their cellmate yeah. or the people they're with.
2: It is an issue. One of the things I get challenged with, though, is that when I go in and I try to embark my knowledge... Potentially because it's the first time people have seen me. They don't know if I'm an enemy or a good person. True. Uh, I try to sort of give my opinion and assure people, but I come in part of the enemy, so it's very hard to convince people that what I'm saying, if it's reassuring words, is true. That I'm not minimizing because I'm part of the the bad team.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I never really considered just the bad team because I I had some really good people that were working with me. Mm -hmm. I I just felt that they didn't take everyone as serious as they could mm-hmm. they should have sometimes mm-hmm. when they relied on just simple test results mm-hmm. instead of saying okay we need to take this a step further because if you have symptoms that show something
2: is seriously wrong here right I think what you're getting at is there's these diseases that are like the five percent where ninety five percent of the people and I and I'm not sure what your illness was or or you, whether you're comfortable talking about it but. Maybe it is that 95%, 98% of the people who presented with those symptoms, they would have gotten better on their own, but the 2% didn't, and you're the 2%. Oh, is that 2% that um,
1: ended up with the colitis Mm -hmm. and the Crohn's disease, where it exacerbated so badly that, yeah. Let's just say, very lucky I wasn't put on a bag immediately, that's how, because it went almost a year without being diagnosed, until I finally got so bad, where I could barely walk or stand, and staff was just like, what's going on here? You can't. And by that point, I had a certain reputation in the facility to begin with, where it was just like a level of respect, mm. and they just, blood work is fine, we don't get it, no, you need to do something else. Yeah. But by the, and I diagnosed myself I went to people that I knew who had the same symptoms that I had in different ways that were already diagnosed right like, so what were your symptoms right. and this is where you go like you said the witch doctor the mm-hmm. person that they had the book with I would go to the people that I knew who have certain things and be like yeah. what else do you have for symptoms and then I would sort of check off my list and be like oh, man <laughs> all right so I need to go out and get that done get tested and and by the time we finally got that done i Taking a handful of medications on a daily basis and infusions and everything else. It's a terrible disease. It really is. And in a facility, it's even worse because you have a cellmate, which makes it very, very complicated mm. and very embarrassing. So, and there's quite a few women that actually have that disease. And it's funny because a lot of them never had it prior to, and no signs, and you
2: get it at an older age than even what's normally
1: uh-huh. diagnosed at. Uh-huh.
2: The bimodal. I think of it Crohn's as being bimodal, meaning there's like a peak around maybe 25 and then a peak about diagnosed around 45. They've come a long way for it, mm. but I know that even the patients that I see inside who have it now can't get the immunotherapies readily, right. which are the kind of the first line or treatment right. because they're so expensive. And then those immunotherapies suppress your immune system. Yes, they do. So... You know, when you're seeing them in the jail, you kind of wonder if that's the best thing for them anyway, if it's not the easiest place to stay clean. And, and, and then also, you're, one of the things that, I mean, you don't have a lot of control over your diet. Uh, I was just going to
1: say the yeah. diet was a big issue for a lot, too, is you, you need certain foods. Yeah. And they just don't have them in the facilities. Yeah. And trying to get special diets and get permission for spe- special diets, that's like fighting a, a never ending battle. Yeah, that you're just not going to win and they'll say buy what you can on canteen okay your canteen does not give us healthy things that we need for our body
2: yeah the canteen it, it's really interesting you know people once they come into and get incarcerated usually gain a lot of weight um, it's typically because the food is just sort of mass-produced and very carb-rich and there's no way to avoid it it's not like you can go to canteen and get food fruits, vegetables, and stuff. and So we see people who didn't have diabetes and didn't have hypertension and didn't have heart disease actually get that while they're in jail. Um, And the canteen issue is also hard because, I mean, I'm guessing most of the time spent in there, you know, sometimes eating is a comfort mechanism. Uh, You know, my favorite food is mac and cheese. I'm sure if I was in jail, I'd eat a whole lot of it and tried (laughs) different versions of it, and that's not the healthiest well, I know for
1: a period of time, they would sell. They give you a lot of carbs and a lot of pancakes. Mm. They tried to change it up and put a little bit of salad on the plates and stuff. But their portions—if you have somebody that's literally been using drugs or alcohol on the outside, running for a long period of time, and then they're incarcerated, and you give them a tray with, say, a hot dog on it and, and a small portion of beans and a salad—they're walking out of the serving room starving. Oh, so yeah, because they're, they're extremely yeah. hungry. Yeah. And even that, if you have a 200-pound person sitting mm. down and you put a plate like that, it's like, okay, I had a five-year-old kid that used to eat that.
2: Right. So people, they're relying on people supplementing with canteen. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I can remember
1: when, when one of the prison systems actually was sued for somebody gaining weight. And I was just like, are you kidding me? Because there's nothing stopping a person from sitting down at that table and eating this person's tray or this person's tray or some of this person's tray and then going back and eating a full canteen. mm So how do you say where you gain that? There's no way you gained it on just state food if you ate only your own portion. Yeah. Because people in close custody walk out losing weight. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. You you lose weight. If you're in close custody for a period of time, Mm -hmm. you're only relying on state food. Oh, right. That's all you have is that one tray Mm -hmm. and the food that they give you. And it's not the calorie count that people would think a normal body would need. Yeah. So by the time you leave close custody, you've lost at least 5 to 10 pounds depending on the, long, the, the length of your stay. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> the health care. It runs in so many different ways besides just getting care on the inside. It's not just the positions, it's the amount of food, the types of foods, and what's offered. Yeah, that's dental a big portion. Is, yeah. oh, that's forget awful. dental. doesn't that's exist.
2: Overlaid with drug use disorder is poor dental care either as a result of using drugs like crack or you know any of these meth things like that or oh, just yeah. as a result of poverty and so yeah I mean the line for dental is huge and that, that the dental care issues whew, it's, a, it's very bad and, and you see people with dental infections all the time and well um, they don't
1: do teeth cleaning
2: Right, they just do acute care. So if it's infected, they'll pull it, but right. they won't do like right. routine they'll care. Pull it. So if you
1: have somebody that walked mm. in there and they had their teeth and then say they got an infection on one of their front teeth, mm. the first thing they're saying is, "Let me pull it." And I'm saying, "Are you crazy? Mm. You're going to have to leave eventually. You need a job. Mm. Smiling with no teeth doesn't exactly open too many job opportunities for you, especially mm. if you're trying to be a waitress or you're trying to work in a service area. Yeah, the way you present yourself and the way that you look it's imperative that you can smile and have all your teeth. Yeah. So it causes a lot of complications in that aspect.
2: I think there's this unfortunate desensitization that happens to people that work in jails because there are a few people that keep on coming in that you feel like no one's ever going to get out. No one's ever going to do anything with their life. No one's ever... This is not me again. I'm speaking... Oh, no, no, I understand it. Yeah. We have that same... We get desensitized, yeah. and we get very cold
1: mm. when, if you do a significant amount of time, we watch those same ones come in and out, mm. and you're still there, and then you see them come six, seven, eight times, and it's just like, Argh. So I, we, I understand you being desensitized as I much as we do. To. I try not mm-hmm. to. Well,
2: Mike, when I see patients again, they, they say, oh, I'm so sorry. I know I've disappointed you. And and I say, you know, it's it's obviously greater than just decisions at this point, right? It's not about going out and making quote-unquote bad decisions it's a series of events that led to mm-hmm. it probably being very hard yeah to support yourself to get food to make it to this office to have some sort of fun to not be stressed out um, to see the old people you used to like hanging out with and so I don't get upset um, I'm, I mean of course I'm sad every time I see them yeah sometimes they'll say you know this is a vacation for my life on the streets when they're in I know that sounds No, it's I
1: heard that. Thing. I have heard it where it's like, Okay, well it's safer for me in here. You know, I at least have food. Yeah. And I have shelter instead of living in a cardboard box outside. Yeah. You know, and they have nowhere else to go or then I'll see the ones that come in on a regular basis and I would see them like a family reunion in yeah. some ways. Where they would all be from the same town and hey, I haven't seen you since you know, and it's it's a way of life, but I think the foundation of most of that is the trauma that's never been able to be addressed.
2: Yeah. Oh, I agree.
1: Because like I always used to say to the women and there, you have 90% of the women that have been beaten, batted, and bruised in so many ways, shapes, and form they have never even been able to touch base on it to find out what's that foundation of it, what's triggered all that trauma, and how do you even address that trauma?
2: One of the things that I've been struggling with lately is... Um sometimes I do find out what people are in jail for or in prison for. Most of the time, it's nothing that would, you know, turn anyone's head. But recently, some of my favorite patients, I found out stuff that, you know, was bone chilling. Yeah. I recently had, you know, a white supremacist who was very open with their views to me. And I can give standard of health care regardless of what. But I like to go above standard of health care. So to push myself to go above the standard of healthcare, to give even more time, more energy to people when I find out some of the stuff. I mean, the, the, the obvious answer is don't find out the stuff, right? right? That's the obvious that way. But it happens. People talk. You're in the room. Sometimes people tell you. Of course. So that's a real challenge. It's a challenge when you have them in your cells. mm And I actually
1: worked in the health area Mm -hmm. for quite a while in the hospital unit. So I used to see people coming in detoxing and they'd be so sick. Uh, My heart would break. Mm. And then other times, that's where the insensitivity would sort Mm. of kick in because you get so cold when you start seeing it all the Mm. time. You start not to feel as much anymore. But I would find that, yeah, you you need to try to still be kind and caring. And, And it does become a challenge even for the people that are incarcerated and where they really incarcerated together i have learned to well see both sides yeah of the coin i've gotten to see the medical staff who were very good to me and they were nice and kind and i've got to see them be really sweet to some people and then at other times it'd be like no <laughs> and i'll be like ooh, they're not very nice to that one yeah but i don't know if it had to do with their crimes or it had to do with some people just hypochondriacs. <laughs>
2: yeah, I can't. I, I actually think, yeah, you know, sometimes I'm in a room with a patient at the jail and I could spend the whole day listening to them, talking with them, uh, and then sometimes someone will come in and my heart will drop that I have to see them again. I've gotten some advice on that because someone said to me if you think it's hard to be in the room with that person, think how hard it is for that person to be inside themselves. You know, like the, the, these people that make your skin crawl that are accusing me or saying they're gonna sue me or for every little thing. Like that person's obviously coming from an area having a difficult development. You know, I don't know what happened in their life. So yeah, those are the patients. You know, some, they'll ask for a bottom bunk, right? Like, yep. And they'll be jogging around the yard. Right, or the or, or a special pillow because the pillows are really flat, and so you can, There's a wedge that you can put under your pillow, or Ensure is something that you can take. It's like a it's like a milkshake you can take to boost your calories, and mm-hmm. the, you know that's like in that order. Those will be the requests. And I used to give you it don't to everyone. The cotton blanket. I no one asked me for a cotton blanket.
1: No asked you for a I don't blanket? know if they just don't have them Do you anymore. Do not have the wool ones anymore.
2: I People have asked me for extra blankets, and I don't can't find the button on the computer to order it, honestly. Oh. Um, I mean, it's because everything's ordered electronically, and so I can put in a little note. Um, they've actually taken away a lot of my privileges for ordering this stuff, because You're I was ordering it too many times. <laughs> in fact, when you go into some of the rooms now, it'll say, do not ask me for a bottom bunk, like on the room, just for whoever's right. sitting. Don't uh, ask. Just don't ask, because... Yeah. I was one of those people that had a bottom bump, though.
1: Only because one of the, we had different kind of buildings, and one of them, there was just impossible to even climb, unless you're, like, 20 years old, and you can just climb right up it. Uh, I'm not 20 years old, so...
2: sometimes afterwards about how i could have done things differently
1: but your hands are tied just as much as ours are
2: sometimes too well it's difficult to know i can fight for things i just have to make sure it's the things that i want to fight for it's almost like get out of jail free cards no pun intended but like i can have a few things that i could really fight for, for yeah and if i if i make every little thing something to fight for then it's not gonna then i'm not gonna help anyone right and plus they're not gonna pay attention to they're you. just gonna stop they're yep. gonna stop paying attention to me
1: and I think one of the hardest parts. Their mattresses are what about four inches? Mm, very and skinny. you're on a, a steel slab. Yeah. So, your body takes a toll. Mm. It takes a huge toll being on something like that. So unless you know people that are working that are making those mattresses, you, you really need to know somebody to, to make it a little bit bigger for you. <laughs> a mattress doctor. I know. And we get them We used to have them We'd have Yeah People who would make the mattresses And it would be like Extra stuffing in that one staff would look
2: at us like How did you well, Please don't ask <laughs> Yeah The brilliance And the craftiness That happens Is beautiful Um I don't I, know if that's the right word Sorry Well Actually you have to be Creative
1: Like mm. when I was talking about the tea And you put your cold medicine in it And you put your cough drops And all that That was how it would help you Get better mm. And also like tooth, when you had an abscess in your mouth or something going wrong, then you had <clears throat> the antibiotics you would use from the honey mm-hmm. and the garlic mm-hmm. and the tea bags and the hot pots mm-hmm. for the heat, and it would hurt, and you would be in pain, but you're not going to get to the dentist anytime soon, right
2: because
1: that waiting list is ten times longer mm-hmm. than being seen by a nurse practitioner. Mm-hmm. So you're you're better off trying to make sure you can heal
2: yourself as much as you can. Did you ever have a
0: you hard get time creative.
2: getting, like, um, sanitary napkins?
1: Yes. And I, sometimes I used to think the men were more embarrassed than we were sometimes when we'd say, can we have some? But yeah. then they hand you two. And we'd be like, yeah, you're joking, right? Yeah. <laughs> you do realize we're females and that's going to last maybe an hour? And for some, not even? So you you found that it'd be easier, you stockpile, Mm -hmm. and then when your room gets raided, Mm -hmm. then you have to, or search, then they take them. So now you're going back and you're trying to do it again, so you're taking piecework. Like, even Mm -hmm. though you don't have it, you're going to the office and you're getting them so you can stock it up for the time that you do have it. Mm -hmm. So you can actually get through the week with them, or you have to buy them. And not everybody has somebody sending them money so they can buy things, and you don't get... You can have a job in the prison system, but we all know that does not pay. No. You can't live on that. But you also can't live in a prison system without having some kind of income coming in, because you need soap, you need shampoo, and being indigent there, you can't have anything in your funds for at least two weeks, and then it's going to take you a little while for you even get something from there, and then it's going to be such a small amount that you're starting all over again, saying, "Okay, now I need it again," within another week. Mm-hmm. So it's it's hard on families outside and friends because they're
2: the ones that really have to support you. Right. And they don't it seems like sometimes the family members are a little bit upset or disappointed at times and so they don't know if you know, giving you that extra money right. enables you to mm-hmm. have a Kit Kat bar and whether you should really be punished and not have that Kit Kat bar.
1: Or maybe it's gonna give you that soup so you can break it in half so you can go to sleep at night without being hungry.
2: Yeah. It depends on how they spend their money that they have right right yeah the criminal justice reform bill is going to mandate that sanitary napkins are given without cost i mean we can say things will be done but they're not done right the right and and there's no often no way of knowing whether this is actually you can put a policy in place but unless you evaluate every jail on every day you're not going to know that it's actually happening (laughs) that's so true um but maybe there's you know i feel like there's a little bit of a bright light there is they're trying they're doing some changes and these changes
1: will help people Mm. I I mean I would love to see a lot more change yeah of course you know in different categories instead of just sentencing but also in men they have the good time being changed the mandatory minimums being changed I would like to see something focus more for the health care and for the aging Mm mm-hmm because right now there are so many people that are aging in prison that are not getting the care that they need. Yeah. Nor uh, will they ever be able to get that care unless they're going to give up their housing units to stay in a hospital unit where they're going to be basically segregated from everybody that they know. So now they're not getting help from the people they know who have been there with them. But people that went in at a young age are now old.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's you know in speaking with a lot of the people that make the budgets sometimes my heart goes not out to them but I can see how they don't have much to work with you know I try to plea with them and say this is needs to happen this is needs to happen they say we know it needs to happen but the only way that's going to happen is if we take something away and there's nothing to take away so from a higher level it's about some. They didn't go into it to provide health care. They went into it to keep our communities safe, and I'm saying that with quotations. Right. I mean, a lot of the people who are in jail are related to non, nonviolent crimes. So I think one of the questions is, you know, but, but the jails and the prisons are giving a lot of health care, right? They are giving and health care. And mental health care, and, you know, if you it, call it that. Well, mental health care, that's a whole another ball
1: ballgame. Yeah. Unfortunately, they do not have staff for that. right. You know it's that's one of the biggest downfalls is mm-hmm. there is not enough staff that will actually be able to touch base with the people that need help
2: right, yeah, as frequently as they need it with the medications that they need with the type of innovative cutting edge modalities that they need. It's not just a you know let's give you a pill so you get drowsy all the time because that's not going to solve anything I agree,
1: even though they have used that as a
2: <laughs> as a
1: way to calm people down and keep them that way, yeah. So they don't act up and cause codes and issues within the prison system. Let's keep them highly medicated. Mm -hmm.
2: Unfortunately, that does happen. I guess it's all a shift. So either we have to shift the thought process to see these people are not nonviolent criminals and they'd be better on the outside with some sort of process rather than on the inside. Or for people who need that has been determined that they're a sort of a threat to society then they need to have the standard of healthcare provided in the community. Which is kind of what common sense. Yeah.
1: See that's one thing that always I always hear is the nonviolent. Well what about the ones that are in there for an act of violence that may have been perpetrated against right. them. No, you're right. And they're reacting to
2: that. You're absolutely right. I mean I Because think, there yeah. are so
1: many women that are incarcerated because they were beaten right. so badly that they've responded they've reacted
2: yeah you're so right the, 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 they I, should have that right. chance that I shouldn't have made healthcare. it binary like that you're absolutely right well, I, that's
1: what society's doing right now and it, that's what the, the bills yeah. are running for everything is for nonviolent people but they're forgetting that there are people in there that by nature are not violent right
2: they were just put in the situation they were, where they had exactly. to be to survive. When I think of violent, I think of, like, the Dexter-like sociopath, right. which is the vast not-majority of people. You know, the people that kill to who want to kill, the people that rape who want to rape. Right. Not... not the ones that do something yeah. in a survival tactic. Right. You're right. I mean, that's a, actually a really good point that I will take from here.
1: All people re- should receive certain kinds of care. We don't look at what caused person to end up incarcerated. Mm-hmm. We say they're incarcerated, you know, or all those stigmas and stereotypes that society has placed on them, instead of saying that's still a human being. Right. You are in a field, thank God, that looks at us as a human being mm-hmm. and, and wants to give us the care that, that we need. Mm-hmm.
2: I love this idea of criminal justice exposure as being kind of like chickenpox, in that it's changes your life forever. It's a it's an exposure, it's an epidemic. Why don't we think about it like Ebola or Zika or any of these other things? You know, it touches your life and your trajectory of life is changed and it will never be the same. No, never. Have you heard of like the person first terminology for people in jail? Like it's very hard inmate or inmate is sort of it's a classification that's kind of stigmatizing a person in jail or centric language says that we don't use that anymore now it's supposed to be
1: um, people incarcerated or incarcerated person if you're somebody who's staff of doc Mm -hmm. or somebody who's been incarcerated Mm -hmm. you still use those words right because they're just those are the words that are used you can own them though yeah, absolutely. You
2: know, just wait when when my patients who have drug use disorders, identify as an addict. I won't use that word with them, but they can use that word to describe yes. themselves. I'll try absolutely. to work with them to say, <laughs> you know, you do know, you know, we used to in medical school, we used to call people with sickle cell sicklers. It was a terribly rude way of talking about it with tons of implicit bias or probably explicit bias. Even the term diabetic, it's a person with diabetes. Yes. So, yeah, I agree. But it is hard. If you stop someone who's talking at every point of their conversation to tell them they're not using the right words, then you're never going to yeah, have a conversation. Exactly. So it is difficult. And to then know. you don't
1: even know where they're coming from right. because if you have somebody that you don't, you're not aware that they've been formerly incarcerated, yeah. and they're saying, you know, the inmates over at, and you're saying to yourself, well, that's not how we say that anymore. Right. But to them, it
2: is. And they're usually coming from a place of not meaning to use the term and It's just it's a, an efficient term. It's, it's an efficient, well, you know, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's something I struggle with a lot. Because even when you're trying to write your thoughts out, it becomes very cumbersome to use person-first language, even yes. if it's the right thing to do. It's many more words. It's not. It doesn't flow as well. But it's actually the right thing to do. It's constantly changing. That's the problem. Like, it, by the time we start using this one, I'm like, someone will be like, you know, that's not the right term
1: anymore. <laughs> I've walked into that. No. Because since my release into the population, it's been um, society has all these new te- terminologies on how to speak. Yeah. And I'll be like, huh? What do you mean? When did that change? They'll be like, it's called centric language now. Okay, so I guess I need to learn some of that. Then they'll be like, no, we don't use that word anymore. I'll be like, yeah, well, I do. <laughs> you know? It's like, can I still use that word? They'll be like, you can because you were incarcerated, so that's okay for you to speak yeah. that way, but other people can't.
2: <laughs> Do you know that they've done studies where they've given doctors a case and in one case it calls the person an addict presenting with a fever in the other place case it says a person who has drug use disorder presents with a fever. And the treatment course is different. Depending on are that you line. Serious? So they've actually done that study. They've actually done the study where doctors will read a case scenario and determine a treatment, and it will be different based on that line alone. That's not right. That's I mean, not that, right. That's not right.
1: Yeah, it's not
2: right. But so it's part of one of the things. So you t- they'll take it more serious as long as that attic word isn't in there. Right. Well, it's not a moral failing, it's a disease. Right.
1: But, but still, a lot of people still battle with that. Mm. And healthcare still battles with that. Mm. Because you'll have people be like, yeah, well, they could stop if they want to. I happen to be a drug and alcohol counselor. I mm-hmm. talk of everything else I mm-hmm. do in my life. So I go to a lot of CEU trainings mm-hmm. and get to pick up things like that. But it's such a stigma with the words and the wording of things. And if you walk in and you actually have health issues and Correct. you're like, yes, I need some of this, this, and they'll be like, are you an addict? And as soon as they think you might have either alcohol or
2: an addiction, oh, I can't give you something like that. Right. It's just like, okay. I went to this really funny conference one time, and the speaker got up and asked all of these doctors and nurses in the room to raise their hand if they were addicted to caffeine. There were like 200 or 250 people in the room. We basically all raised our hand. And then (laughs) the the speaker says, how many of you have given a blowjob in a corner to get caffeine? And the point was well taken. Yep. That what addicted means. I mean, we may go into withdrawal for not having our caffeine, right. and there may be someone who would perform a sex act, maybe. But that's not the average person who would, you know, break uh, a law or break something that they, f- you know, how they t- normally would go about life right. for caffeine. So it's also interesting to see how we use addicted in layman's terms. Yes, and how we accept addicted in lame, I'm addicted to chocolate, I'm addicted to coffee
1: right. so it's like a word just thrown out there for anybody nowadays that does something in excess. So the person
2: who comes into jail and is addicted, maybe not addicted, but likes to eat cupcakes to excess, will be treated managed differently than the person who comes in who is chemically dependent on heroin because well, the person with cupcakes will get insulin right. And the person who's addicted to heroin will not get medicine. That's true. Wow. That is such a shame. That's why we have to push the diabetes analogy. And not push it. I think it makes sense. That's a good analogy. Um, it's one that I've been trying. How I've do you used feel about the methadone? This is going to be a nice conversation. (laughs) (laughs) I feel it's wonderful. I mean, I think it's wonderful. You know, opioid use disorder is a chronic condition. If someone's on it on the outside, this should be maintained on the inside. The logistics of making that happen are incredibly hard. That's maybe not on me. That's on someone else. But I feel like if you are on a disease on the outside, if you're on a medicine for a disease on the outside, you have to be continued on the inside. Um, the harder question though, is when someone comes in, they say they're on methadone, but then they have fentanyl in their urine and a little bit of cocaine. It's like, that's the great area that I think a lot of people come into jail with. And you can go either way on that. You could say, well, they had methadone in the urine when they came in. So it was working. It just wasn't working well enough. Maybe the dose wasn't high enough. Or you could say, well, obviously they weren't committed to methadone. It wasn't working. Um, I don't think people should be tapered off their medicines for opioid use disorder when they come into jail. I think people should be started on it before they go out. There's where I, I agree with mm-hmm. that one. I can play devil's
1: advocate yeah. on both of yeah. this one, But I feel that if they're, they went in and they weren't on it when they came in, mm-hmm. then they shouldn't be put on it mm-hmm. in some ways where mm-hmm. your body's already adjusting to the fact that you can fight the addiction mm-hmm. and sort of maintain your life without that, another drug to substitute mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But when you're going to come out, it's going to be so accessible to you right. that it would be a good start to try the methadone or what it's going to work for you so you can have that balance in your life enough to to leave and
2: not have that craving. People can do a lot of drugs in jail, and they do. I so know. that's the benefit of doing it in jail. <laughs> and then the other thing is that I've heard that from the time of when you use fentanyl or to stop, it takes about a year for your brain to sort of, kind of reform the neurons to, so that there could be a benefit from you for using that time in jail on medicines ah. as a preparation for what you could be able to achieve when you leave. Otherwise, you're just starting day one. And we know that the linkage to care yeah. after you leave jail and prison is terrible. It is. So, so if we're relying on the system to link people to methadone, to link people to Suboxone or Vivitrol, that rarely happens, and other things get in the way for the people who are leaving as well. Because so. even
1: when they leave a facility, mm-hmm. nine out of ten times they, they'll have mass
2: health, but
1: if they want to go and get a job,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they want to get a job that actually gives them a pay where they could actually afford rent, mm-hmm. then you need to lose your mass health. Right.
2: And they have to get their quarry and run that, and everything, yeah.
1: The quarry run, but then now you have to pay for your insurance. Yeah. Certain medications aren't covered by certain insurances. Yeah. Certain care you end up paying a fortune with. So now you have to go through this battle in yourself where. Okay, I would like to have my own home someday. Can't do that if I'm on mass health. So, do you work three or four jobs and push yourself in the ground when your health is probably getting worse right. to get ahead, so you can actually pay for health care? And I can remember in college, I did work on um the homeless, mm-hmm. and the percentage rate of how many families and how many people are homeless based basically on medical. And the cost itself Mm. because of the okay they go so far into debt they can't get out anymore so they just lose everything right and i've gone through some of that where it's just like i pay my own insurance i get it through the company i'm with and my medications as you know are not cheap right so for me to live with what i have and all the medications it requires and then all the doctors and then all the issues it causes for the other half of my body on top of it you have all these specialists. One emergency room, you're broke. Mm. Like anything you had saved is gone because you have co-pays, you have deductibles, and my medication goes for $15,000 a pop.
2: Yeah. And
1: that's for eight weeks. Yeah. So well, how I do guess- they maintain what they're going to be able to do? So society, we've given them where it's like, okay, well they have all these health issues and we can help them with this and we can give them mass health when they leave. But we're not giving them that step where they can actually come off MassHealth and have a job that they can be proud of and have a job that they can sustain a family with.
2: Right. And still take care of them health-wise. Right, well, if you're teaching people how to knit as their like life skill, I've heard I've heard some jails for women still like offer you know like there has okay, to be active life. Very
1: hard for that. I want you to know. Oh, for to them, get knitting. They did.
2: Oh, <laughs> I just heard recently that the people want like typing skills and filing skills rather than knitting skills. That's all. I, that's it... like... <laughs> but it was something that
1: some of them actually enjoyed. It's sort of therapeutic for them. To oh be able yeah. To sit there and know that they're knitting a blanket and they're going to give it to a child somewhere.
2: Yeah. The pros and cons of knitting in jail. Yeah. <laughs> in jail. <laughs> <laughs> like, News oh, at 11. You know, you,
1: you, you're just sitting there and you're learning a new skill. Yeah. <laughs> to keep you busy at night when you get out. <laughs> Instead of eating all that food that you didn't exactly. have access to inside. Yeah. Sit in front of that TV and just keep eating. No,
0: knit. Yeah. It has been 51 minutes. Ooh. It's, it's time breezed, breezed by. by. I thought we had a very good discussion. Yeah. Thanks to Caleb Martin Rosenthal for composing the gorgeous music you heard in this episode and to Tessa Abaddon for creating our beautiful cover art. For more thoughts and resources on healthcare on the inside, as well as posts for other episodes and some behind the scenes goodness, head over to the Care to Share blog at caretosharepodcast.wordpress.com. The link's also in the show notes. If this conversation at all inspired you to want to speak about your own experiences with healthcare, I encourage you to get out there and share. Your experiences are important, and so is listening to the experiences of others in this podcast. Thanks again for listening for Care to Share.